Today on the Dolby Creator Talks podcast, we welcome cinematographer Robbie Ryan here to discuss his Academy Award-nominated work on Poor Things, the latest and the wildest film from director Yorgos Lanthimos. This is all part of our continuing coverage of the 2024 Academy Awards. We are once again interviewing the nominees in the sound and cinematography and original score categories. So please be sure you're subscribed to us. Poor Things won the prestigious Golden Lion when it premiered at the Venice Film Festival back in September. And now it is nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director. For Robbie, this is his second collaboration with filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos after they worked together on The Favorite, for which Robbie got his other Best Cinematography nomination. But since this is our very first time having Robbie on the podcast to talk about his work, I started the conversation by asking how his filmmaking career began. Me and my friends and my cousins, we used to make little Super 8 films when we were 13, 14. So I was kind of that generation where video cameras hadn't come in yet. Um, certainly not any kind of like online mo- mobile camera stuff. So we we were just really keen sort of enthusiasts. And my dad had had a Super 8 camera when I was growing up. So I was like, ooh, can we have a go at that? And my brother would write some stories and we went out filming all these little short films and we got the bug pretty instantly. So I was about 13, 14 when I was doing that. So I haven't stopped since. And to be honest with you, it's exactly the same feeling as it was back then. So I'm blessed with that for sure. Just the scale has gotten a little bit bigger. Yeah, I'd probably be a little bit more um, tuned into what is needed. But, you know, the enthusiasm hasn't, which is really important. Robbie, on this podcast, we talk a lot with filmmakers about the first 10 minutes of the movie and the importance of, you know, getting the audience into this world. And I can't think of a movie where the world building is more important than poor things. Um, You know, that first 10 minutes, you're not only establishing the characters and the situation, but the mood and the tone, but importantly, you're, you're also really letting them know what's the cinematic language that you're going to be using to tell this story. And what you're doing in poor things is so stylized and dramatic uh, I'd love to just talk about how you and, and Yorgos Lanthimos talked about that first that first chunk of the film and what you needed the audience to kind of take away from that and then how that affected the visual style. Well, with Yorgos, he wouldn't necessarily talk to that level about it. He would talk about the, the whole film and its sort of like approach aesthetically as a whole, you know, it's not kind of something where we go, okay, we're going to talk about the first chunk. But what he did change up a lot of the, at the beginning of the film was that he hadn't chosen to do it in black and white until quite late in the process. And he was, remember, I remember like two or three weeks before we started filming, he goes, oh, I think we might try and extend the black, make a black and white beginning to the film. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I was like, yeah, all right, that's great. But then from the production designer's perspective, it was a little bit more, oh, okay, that wasn't part of what they thought about. So, you know, he, he's quite intuitive and, um, um, I was, you know, he, he likes to kind of feel how it's all working out. So it's, it's a really nice environment to be in because it's not like, you know, this is the way it has to be, this is what we're doing. With Yorgos, it's a bit more like, let's get some ingredients, let's get tools and let's, you know, pare them down to what we think is going to be the right, you know, choices and then we'll... Um, we'll move on from there. And that is very much the approach the whole film took then. We, we did a lot of testing at the beginning 
um because we had a long process of preparation for the film i was in there i was in hungary for like 12 weeks which is for me quite a you know long process so i was um able to use that time to do a lot of camera lens testing with yorgos and that was great fun we we kind of got it down to you know a, a finite amount of lenses for the film because he didn't want to have too many lenses he's really good at like you know paring it down um but as a visual aesthetic from the beginning you know uh the world building in poor things is sort of it's all in the script in a way you know so it, it's it, it sets off on a on a path like the the thing he said he was going to do because of obviously being black and white in the whole entire beginning of the film meant that he scared the producers a little bit or the the financiers a tiny bit so he may, I remember him coming back from a phone call with uh, Searchlight um saying it all went well he just uh, he, all you have to do is have a little bit of color at the very beginning which is the shot you see at the very beginning of the film. Actually, there's some titles as well, which are in color, but the very beginning of the film is um, Bella on, or it's actually Victoria, spoiler alert, on the um, on, <laughs> Good point, on, on a bridge. Yes. On a bridge, and she sort of falls off the bridge. And um, that was like, if we have a bit of color there at the start, that means we're okay, because when the rest of the next half an hour is in black and white, people remember there was a bit of color to start. Um, so that was, you know, there, there are things that we, we were consciously doing. And, um, you know, from there on in, yeah, like we, we were prepared. We, we worked, tested, and then we kind of got shooting. And that was, uh, that was the language. And that's the way we went forward. But that must have been quite a curveball to switch to black and white so shortly before you started photography. Because you, you were also shooting on, you were capturing on 35 Neg, right? So did that mean, did you cap, so you captured on, on black and white stock? Yeah, yeah, everything. Yorgos is a uh, he. He hasn't shot on digital since the Lobster. He uh, he he kind of went way off film uh, digital shooting on the Lobster, and he he's a huge advocate of shooting on celluloid, as I am myself, and that's I think why we we connect because we both love filming on film. And um, I think uh, yeah, we shot on black and white negative, and we shot on color negative, and we shot on ectochrome uh, reversal stock. So you know. Uh, the black and white thing was always in the mix because there's the chapter headings are in the film where they were always going to be in black and white. Um, and then he sort of went, I really want to try more of this because he, he, he loves shooting black and white stills as well. So I think he just wanted an approach uh, with this one to, obviously he, he intuitively thought this would be a good way to begin the film because obviously her world goes into this crazy new place and, you know, uh, it's a good transition and uh, it rubber stamps it. What I love about um, this is that usually in a film, it's color and the flashbacks are in black and white, but in this, the film is in black and white and the flashbacks are in color. And then it goes into, you know, another journey and another special, uh, like, you know, explosion of color when she goes to Lisbon. So, yeah, the, the thing was we shot the the, um, the flashbacks, which is the re reanimation scene on Ectochrome Vista Vision. So that was very exciting. I want to get into that um, and, and dive a little bit more into that. But before we do, I, I think for, for our audience who might not um, necessarily know what that means, what's the tell, so what's the difference between um, color negative and then and then Ectochrome? Well, Ectochrome is the easiest way to explain it is it's like you remember you used to get slide film uh, and watch it on a, at home. Well, if you're a certain generation, you'd get like a little kind of the carousel slide film. So that's that's a positive bit of film. So you, when you took that picture or whoever took that picture, they got it back in the slide meant that the film in the camera was not a negative, it was a positive. So um, 
that is what we were filming. What it, that is what ectochrome is. It's a, it's a, you're filming. If you looked at your strip of like film, it's all positive images instead of negative images. And, um, you know, it's it, by inherently, it's more contrasty, it's more colorful. And, uh, it's exactly what Yorgos likes in his cinematography, really, because it's, it's something he leans toward a lot in, in grading is to go a bit more contrasty. So I think, um, uh, that was something he was really keen to test out. And he'd been in tune with uh, Marcel Rev, who was shooting Euphoria, uh, a TV show. And he, he'd got Kodak to um, cut 35 mil neg, sorry, 35 mil uh, positive of what Kodak originally reissued with this stock, because it was a reissued stock, which was on 16 mil and only on 16 mil. But then Marcel got them to cut it to 35. We got some of that and we were able to get more of it off Kodak as 35 mil. But the thing with Marcel's stuff is that he only processed it as cross-process because in in the genius of Kodak, they've reissued this stock that can't actually be processed. It can only be processed in maybe two labs in the whole world. So luckily there was a lab in Berlin which processed for us and they they were great people called Andek and there's a guy called Ludwig in there who was very uh, very good with us and he was able to do really nice uh, E6 processing because that's the different process you do um, and it looked great we loved it so it was a, it was a it was a really fortuitous place to be filming you said the reanimation sequence which immediately stood out to me in terms of its contrast just the inkiness of the blacks and the vibrancy of the colors uh, were there other key sequences that you shot in ectochrome we we were kind of saying that we'd shoot all the exteriors on ectochrome so all the lisbon exteriors are ectochrome the ship exteriors are on ectochrome paris exteriors are ectochrome anywhere where we could kind of because it's a very slow film stock so anywhere that we had a bit of exposure that we could you know get it achieved would be um sort of what we thought of but we we shot the reanimation scene on it and that was where the the, the story would it goes if it's dark it might not be retrievable so that was an extra bit of pressure on me i was like oh and the lenses sometimes we were shooting were a little bit slower so the reanimation scene needed a lot of light but i remember that coming back a bit dark and i was like really nervous about it and you're always like yeah it's a bit dark but we'll be okay and uh it was it was okay <laughs> But so I learned a lot about using it and, you know, the results really were, they, they zinged, you know, they, they came back really, yeah. really different and exciting. And I think it informed the, the grade of the rest of the color footage, you know, cause it's, you have this as a kind of a, a placeholder or as such. And it's like, okay, that's really, that's the way we like to look of it. Let's swing everything a bit that way, you know? Yeah. And we had a, we had a great grader called Greg Fisher in company three who, who did all the work and he, he, um, did a magical job on that. You said that um, you shot the exteriors on Ektachrome, but every, all your exteriors were actually on soundstage, right? So you're still having to pump a lot of light through there. <laughs> yeah, well, but with the, 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 the approach we made with the film was that I, the approach Yorgos, from what I learned doing the favorite with him, is that he uses obviously uh, quite wide lenses on his film. So he doesn't really like film lights on set. So we always approach, well, since that favorite onto poor things the approach was let's have a, a source of light from outside the building that lights through these windows and that will give us enough ambience inside with including practical lights inside that we can kind of use without having to have any other film lights anywhere so this that, that sort of like made it simpler for me in the studio aesthetic because i just built big skies and uh, we got a lot of lights um and they they created 
the the ambience that was what was needed and it but it was a simple approach instead of being very complex it was quite simple from from a an ideas point of view the logistics of it that took a little bit more like a lot of rigging and the the gaffers and the rigging gaffers did an amazing job it always been one step ahead because we had six sound stages going one after the other you know um which was totally different to what i've ever done like i i i'm so used to going into a location and having a couple of redheads <laughs> so you know uh both all of all of us on the crew were quite new to the, the the scale of this so it was it was a i always felt it was a bit like a campus where we were all like how's your day going and um you know i think it, it worked out great it's the second film that you've made with Yorgos, and, and obviously the first time you guys worked together on the favorite, it's the it, the visual style is completely different. So I'm kind of curious, how did that? How did you meet up with Yorgos? How did how did he find his way to you uh, to start this collaboration? Um, firstly, I think this visual style is exactly the same, personally, but because <laughs> we only did zooms is the only difference. But everything in that is exactly what we did in the favorite. It's just a different kind of world, I guess. But um, Yorgos was, uh, he, he kind of, we went for a coffee uh, a good while ago. I think it was after he'd done The Lobster, actually, because um, he sent me off to watch The Lobster in a cinema because um, uh, I hadn't seen it. And he was just sort of looking for a new DP um, and he'd maybe seen stuff I'd done, I don't know, that he liked. But we had a good time. We, we got on pretty good and when we had our coffee. And, um, you know, he was just sort of, sort of checking out whether I was able to sort of be kind of able to be competent, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I still pinch myself thinking that he saw me, something in me that was um, half decent. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the process since then. It's a very unique sort of relationship. You had a good first date and look what happened. You know, it's, it's all good. Sort of, I guess. Yeah. That's maybe it. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but Yorgos is actually, he's a very accomplished photographer in his own right. And I'm so, I'm curious for you as a cinematographer, what's it like to work with a director who, who has such a keen understanding of your art form? Oh, he's, he's way more masterful at cinematography than I am. Like he knows everything. And, um, you know, on this film and poor things, uh, let me go back and the favorite he had a digital camera that he was taking stills with and he kind of was losing sort of patience with that so between the favorite and poor things he'd gotten really into um film stills and on, on 35 mil and then he got up to a large format and he was shooting on this camera called a chamonix uh, large format camera so in between every take york was like okay it's portrait time and uh he'd go in take a portrait of um one of the actors and um then he you know it was on a like you know windows pull it put the hood over pull it in take it out and like you know this is in between figuring out takes and drama and all that so he'd do that you know all on his own put it in his little um kind of in a can in a, a safe box and then he'd bring it home and actually him and emma would go like do processing at nighttime and sort of like develop these pictures scan them and bring them in the next day and go, oh, yeah, well, I hope this is a nice shot. And I'm like, where do you find the time and the energy to do this? It's, it was impressive. So he, he and his photo photographs that you see from a publicity point of view for this film are beautiful. So uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in awe of his uh, sort of cinematic eye and his knowledge. He's way more copped on than I am. <laughs> I'm a good operator. I think that's all that Jorgos sees in me. And even then, when I'm on the wheels... He says you're not doing them anymore because I did it. I tried that in the favorite and it was a disaster. On you know, like when you're trying to do the wheels and remote heads. 
So he's like, on poor things, he made me sit on, most people these days would do a crane shot and they'd have it on a techno crane and there'd be wheels and there'd be loads of that. And he was going, no, no, we'll get a sit on crane and you can sit on that. So I, I had a sit on crane, which I enjoyed. I liked being on that because, um, you know, it's nice and there's a nice bit of air up there. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah, that was, that was, that, that's, that's, he, he's, he's, he's super tuned in. Like it's, it's impressive. On, on all levels, he's a really phenomenal director on every level because he knows everything about everybody's department. But what he does really well is that he doesn't over, make it overbearing. He's kind of like, he lets you take it and go your journey. And then he'll kind of like go, okay, that's going good. I didn't think you'd do that. Or yeah, that's what I was hoping you'd do. So he he's not um, pushy, you know, he's not like, he's just more like disappointed if you're not doing it wrong. <laughs> Which is crushing, which is even worse. It's even worse, right? No, it's good. It's good. It, it it makes you actually really work to your best. It's not making you feel like you're being pushed. So, Robbie, I, I, I've heard you talk about this kind of crazy concept, which was that you shot that you you shot the movie using five lenses, and I, I you almost had a rule like every scene you had to use all five lenses. So, can you tell us a little bit like what were the five lenses and where did that where did that approach come from? we did a lot of testing and he kind of had it in his head that he wanted to have five, you know, something where he, he could do whatever he like with this film, he wanted to obviously still have the wide angle sort of aesthetic. And we went further with the wide angle aesthetic because he wanted to have a kind of a porthole sort of vignetted uh, wide angle, which was a, a new one. And I was like, Oh, okay, how are we going to do that? And, you know, I kind of, done a bit of digital photography or like video uh, large format cinematography lately where there's a lot of lenses don't fit on the large format sensor so you get this vignette and you're like oh jesus that doesn't fit the lens so or the sensor so i knew it from that i said well hang on if we use a 16 mil lens on a 35 mil uh negative that might happen and it worked out really perfect we had this like four millimeter optex lens for 16 mil that when you put it on 35 mil just had that perfect circle so that was a that was a, a lucky break, and I, I always uh, like to think I thought that one up. Yay! <laughs> that vignetting was not uh, a post production effect. That was in that happened in. No, in no, that's, that's the full aspect of the lens. Yeah, and like what's really nice about that, you get these aberrations around the very edges of it, and you know it, it has its little like organic quality to it, which was very sweet. And um, yeah, none of that was um, uh, you know posted. That was all real. And like the four mil lens is great because it's like a, it's got a focus of two feet to infinity, so everything's in focus. But we still found a way of getting one shot out of focus because we were too close to Rami Youssef in one shot, and it's like, pfft. but we, it's in the movie, and that's what I like about Yorgos as well. He'll he'll kind of he'll he'll go with it, and if it's a if there's a an error or you know what would be called technically not right, he he kind of that's okay, and he'll move on with it, which I think is really um, a good good trait. But uh, so we had that. And then he was also wanted to do that was the wide angles. And he also wanted to develop a, a kind of a zoom language with this one. So we kind of um, we he showed me a lot of Fassbinder films. He was like, this is great. I love the way the, 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 the sort of lens develops the scene and it stays with the scene. And we could maybe shoot scenes in its entirety on zoom. Uh, which I thought great, and it, it, it's it, it was a really lovely way of working. Every scene where you kind of you, we we dollied and tracked and zoomed, and uh, 
I got used to doing that. And it was, that was actually from my perspective, the most challenging piece of the filmmaking because the timings had to be right. And sometimes the timings weren't right, but I got, you know, I, I was, I was aware that was like, had to be more, you had to get that on the ball a bit better than just being on a wide lens. A wide lens is the easiest way for me to film something because you go, hey, it looks great. And you step back, everybody else has a tough time, but the cinematographer pretty much has an easy time. Um, <clears throat> then there was, he also wanted to learn, uh, he, he liked the, the you know, very shallow focus, uh, early sort of photography um, of like the, you know, third of the, 20th, the 19th century. Um, no, third of the 20th century, sorry, uh, where, was it 20, 18, whatever. It was early photography, and um, he he wanted to try it out. There's these lenses called Petzval lenses, which um, were made by, uh, I think he was Hungarian, actually, Petzval. And he he created these lenses a long, like 100 years ago. And Jorgos had sort of, sort of through, again, like digital, digital photography had embraced the... Um, Lomography basically it embraced the pet files and they were very kind of like rudimentary design, but then they've been rehoused. So we were able to kind of land on these and he was keen to try those out. And they, they are the ones that have that really swirly bokeh behind them. Anytime you're in nature and, or in like a, a, an outdoor space, it seems to grab the background and swirl it around. So it was really good for her kind of world, the way Bella's like, you know, a little bit, a different approach. Yeah, I, I want to stop you right there because I those scenes just jumped out at me, and I thought, what that what the hell what the hell am I looking at? That's so that's just something. It's, it's just something in the nature of the glass. The doing of that, that's yes, doing that effect. The glass. Yeah, it's a very simple glass. I think it's like I was talking to guys from Petzval last weekend, and they're saying it's just the way that the, the two elements of glass are put together that the distance and the, the tuning of it creates this bokeh, and it's it's obviously a. It's a slow, it's a faster lens. I think it's kind of like a, uh, no, it's actually not. It's a 2.8, if I remember, 2.2 and 2.8. So it's it's just the nature of the lens, the glass, the way that Petzval kind of manufactured it. And um, it's become very popular in digital sort of photography because everybody wants to bend the sensor as much as they can. But we, ha I hadn't done it before on film. So it was, it was great. It, it was exactly what he wanted. And um that was so that was that portrait type lens and then we had the zooms and we had the wide lenses and yeah that was about a lot of them really the, the fact that we had maybe two zooms two uh, portrait lenses and two wide angles so it was five or six lenses and his theory was let's use them in every scene to uh, like uh, you know it would be weird if you didn't use it in the scene so we kind of like we we used them and the fact that they were always there meant that they were always like a finite amount of lenses to choose from. Now, do you guys, I mean, how do you prepare? Do, is, is this all storyboarded? Do you, do you know going in, you know, what lenses you're going to use and on a, what setup? Or are you just kind of like, you just kind of wing it on the day? He's very instinctful. Yeah. He, he, we did do storyboards very briefly for the reanimation scene and the scenes with, with, which involved uh, miniature work because we needed to talk to other departments, but it still didn't work out that great with the storyboard system. I think that's why Jorgos likes getting a team of people around him who are, you know, open to being, you know, not too set in stone what we're doing. And I'm very like that. I like to be, you know, what you want? Oh, okay, we'll do that and work around the spontaneity of that idea. And um, he, he's, you know, you get into the rhythm of what may, way we're sort of working. And if, if everybody is up to speed and able to, 
change it at a moment's notice, then I think he likes that. And um, I, I like that way of working myself. I, I find storyboards kind of sometimes, you know, are good. It, it depends on the type of film, really. And this film didn't really need it so much. And he, he doesn't work that way. But I'm kind of curious for you, um, kind of how that complicates the day for you, because like if you're mixing and matching sort of the wide angle primes with a with a zoom, I mean, zoom lenses are a lot slower because they've got so many more elements in them. Right. So how do you kind of how to, you have to kind of adjust your lighting as you go through the day? No, no, not really. Um, the, the zooms we got were like pretty sort of the same. Actually, they were 2.2 to 2.8. So generally everything was kind of the same. You know, we were always able to to. Um, work within the light exposure, I think. And no, no, I, I, I didn't have a problem with that. Like the zoom thing with him, he wanted to get an optically impossible zoom. He wanted something that was like a 10 mil zoom to a 200 mil zoom. And on film, you just can't get that. So we ended up with a 16 millimeter, 16.5 millimeter to 110 millimeter, which was a big master zoom uh, by Ari. And it's great. It was, and I, I always thought he's going to hate this one, but it was actually because it's very, sharp and it's very like you know and it it felt like he wouldn't it wouldn't have a quality that might be what we were looking for but he actually went that's great that looks good because with that film film can take sharp lenses better than digital can you know so in a way we're always leaning toward more sharp lenses now on film than um the softer ones because some of the the older lenses have a bit of a dodgy resolve when they're on the wide end you know wide lenses tend to be a bit soft so I think Jorgis really likes sharpness on film to a point. Um, so the the zoom we ended up with was great. And yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have had a problem. It didn't affect my day at all. I was like, okay, we'll do that. Bop, 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 bop. You know, it was always in and around the right world of uh, exposure. Yeah. It was more soft. Is the problem. But we had a great focus puller as well, Olga Abrahamson, who was amazing. She did the wonderful zoom like you're starting on somebody's eye like emma's eye is usually there super close up and on a track you're pulling out to the wide end and like never did it go out of focus olga was she she came out of the heavens and she was amazing <laughs> i can't thank you enough thank you olga <laughs> i loved the the look of the zooms i love that effect i i hope you guys are single-handedly bring bring the zoom back it's almost like it, it almost feels like voyeuristic in a way yeah, I can I can see what you're saying there. I, I think um, you know they always had a bit of a bad rep zooms, but they're absolutely beautiful and they're you know they they create a whole tension and emotion. They they've got a lot of things going for them as far as you know if they're used properly or not properly, but used in the right way for the, the story that you're trying to tell. And with poor things, you're in her head a lot, so you're kind of like every time you come out of her head, it feels like, you know, you've seen her perspective a bit more. It, it was, a, it was a, a great idea to do the zooms. He usually comes up with great ideas. <laughs> the movie's uh, presented in one six, six. Tell me about that decision and kind of what, what led you to that aspect ratio? We done the favor on one eight five. And I think, um, well, it was down. I don't know whether it was something to do with Vista vision, but you always liked the idea of one six, six. I've done a lot of one six, six, on films recently as well and it's it's a really lovely sort of it's called the golden ratio in painting because it's sort of got that aspect to it and it's nice because it's sort of it's not too widescreen and it, it's 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 got a portraiture feel to it which is really nice and um it's it's sort of it creeps up on you you don't know what whether it's squarer or wide you know it's a good sort of in the middle kind of aspect and um yeah i i i loved it and i think Jorgis was keen on it as well so 
by 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 chance when we decided to go Vista Vision. Since I've I've been going on about everyone saying it's one six six Vista Vision, but it's actually one point five. But it's closer to one six six than one eight five is. So we we were kind of oh it's great that Vista Vision we can use that and that's going to be the same aspect as our final aspect, and that was. Um, a part of the reason. So you've been mentioning VistaVision, and I think there's probably people in the audience who don't know what that means. Um, can you just explain a little bit about VistaVision? And, and first of all, like I, I, the last time I heard VistaVision was in you know conversations about ILM visual effects in the '80s. So how how did that become your tool of choice? I'm a little bit surprised at why it fell off. The, it's a bit like I guess the way VHS and Betamax fought it out. Betamax lost, you know. One format will always win, and if you if you look back at the um, the beginnings of Vista Vision, it came out uh, at sort of just around the same time as Cinemascope. So the whole anamorphic sort of system of like squeezing your two three five uh, onto like onto onto the negative via the lens was uh, more preferable, and it seemed to work, and it just took off. Whereas Vista Vision, what it did was instead of the film going vertically through a gate. It would then go horizontally through a gate, so it's still thirty-five mil, but it's going horizontally. So you get essentially twice the amount of um, negative on your on your sensor or your aspect. Uh, it's eight, your it's sensor, eight sorry, perf your versus aspect. four perf, right? It's lazy eight, they call it, because it, it's on the side and it goes through that way. It's basically what your SLR camera takes if you were shooting on stills film, um, and it's beautiful. It a bit more pricey because it goes through a lot quicker than the the vertical. So, um, but that's that, that was what the studios sort of tried to kind of they, they they engineered this as an idea for getting people back to the cinema because they were worried about tv so they got people back to see these wider images and all the hitchcock's films well quite a few of them were shot in uh, this division um because what you could do i think is what he did is he put a hard mask on it so his films would have been shot 166 but they always feel widescreen so what they did is they did a hard mask in the cinema so that it looked 235 and then um, that's sort of even more interesting. I find that they're cropping it again, but uh, you know, for us and our, our like, what was great and why it, it, it fell off to um, sort of popularity stakes because it was a big camera, it was quite a noisy camera, um, and you know, the cinema scope just took off. Uh, but because the cameras were so be- well made, they were very, very solid transport systems in inside them, and so very, very steady. They had no weave when they, they were filmed, so like they were. That's why they became popular in the uh, post effects for like, visual effects. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because they had they had this really great registered transport system. So it's like doof, you don't have any kind of weave. And I've just been doing t- tests on a, a Wilcam Vista Vision, and I was like, wow, that thing's solid, you know. So. Most film cameras have a little bit of a because of the way they they just transport the film. So that's that that was that kept it going for a while. And to be honest with you, there's very few um, Vista Vision cameras left. There's a bow a bow cam which is like a, a an Ari three that's been re like Frankensteined, and that's the one we used on Poor Things. Um, and you know it's noisy and it's, 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 it's light and it's very small, but it's very, very noisy. So for sync sound, it's a bit of a, a nightmare. Um, so we, we ended up using that one on poor things, but we've been testing for another film and there's a bit of a, another camera that's a bit quieter that we're excited about. And there's a lot of people shooting Vista Vision at the minute. Paul Thomas Anderson shooting it. Interesting. Um, Brady Corbett shooting it. So maybe I shouldn't be saying the same, saying these things, but, 
uh, yeah, like it's 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 if you say Zooms are on the way back, watch out, Vista Vision's coming back. <laughs> Vista Vision coming back. I did not have that on my twenty twenty four bingo card. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a beautiful film stock, a, a, a beautiful film format because it's just it's it's not as huge as IMAX, but it's certainly got something about it that's in that world of larger sort of format. And it's it's really really um, it feels to me it feels like the right format that film should be shot at personally because it just it, it it's it's like a film still. So I'm just kind of curious because essentially isn't it sort of the same area as like a 65 five perf? So w- why would you choose one over the other? 65 kind of like it's easy. Well, I don't know. I think I like the idea that you're shooting on a 35 mil neg still, whereas 65 mil is sort of like a bigger negative. Sp- and the cameras are bigger, you know, it's, it's a, it's a beast of its own, you know, and, but for sure, you're right. And 65 mil tends to have a widescreen aspect to it, which I like the fact that this division is, uh, you know, square or like 1.5. Uh, yeah. It's all press personal preference. <laughs> I could go So on. did you shoot the entire film in this division or did you switch to? No, 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 because the August was really, the August is really adamant that he wants, uh, proper sync sound he was like that thing sounds like a tractor we're not using that so we could only use it for stuff that was non-sync which is the reanimation scene um and to be fair that camera that camera wasn't a great uh, workhorse it was like the batteries were dying on it all the time and it generally wasn't like yeah you couldn't rely on it and we were using ari sts and they're very reliable so, and we've just got a few minutes left, but if, if I can, I'd just love to fire some, some of the scenes, the sequences at you and, and you can talk about your approach to lighting because I, for me, each, each kind of, each time we change locations, it was such, uh, it was, it was almost like a confection of all this new stuff to get to look at and to experience. So we started off in London, but then we go to, to Lisbon, which just exploded with color and light. And, uh, I, I've heard you say that that was a, a particularly difficult sequence to shoot. Can you talk about the Lisbon section? Yeah, it was just, it was a scale of, uh, the, the set was huge, but for some reason, by the the way it was so big it was kind of ungainly for us to get it the way we wanted it and it was just it just it, it was it felt like it was overwhelming trying to capture it in its entirety and my my reasoning was that it was in a it, we we shot everything in one studio complex but that section was in another studio complex like two hours drive away so i never really got to go there and let it sort of fuse over me all the time i was always like oh god every time i got there i was like oh it seems like i'm not sure how to light it so it was it was it was on a lot of our all of our craft levels we all seem to struggle with that one a little bit but it's really great that people don't kind of really i i think we just the potential it had we tried to hit high and it, it, we maybe could have hit better, but I'm glad that where we hit was still enough for people and they love it, you know? Um, and it was just, it was just such a, it was like a theme park. It was a big theme park that we were trying to, you know, grapple with and make it work, but it, it was a beast. I think you're being overly self-critical. I did that whole sequence to me. It was so just Irish and self-deprecating. I can't help it. <laughs> I think that whole sequence just was so delightfully kind of Jules Verne, Verne to me that I, it was just, it was well, just delicious. For to watch. sure. The trams are up in the air, kind of bring you to another place. All right. Yeah. And um, it's, it, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun part of the film. It's great. Yeah. 
And then uh, the sequence on the ship, I just was just was just breathtaking to me. So I, I know that 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 those backgrounds were an LED wall. So that that material was all. So that was all shot in camera, uh, right? But that that must have caused caused a lot of some headaches for you in terms of lighting that thing. That was a night, not a nightmare, but it was a difficult one. Yeah, but all of the other sets had a, an exterior as such. Like London, you could look out the window, you'd see London. If you looked out the windows in Paris, you'd see Paris. If you looked out Lisbon, you see Lisbon. So the ship, all you could see was nothing because it was in a green. We were not at sea. So Jorgis has gone. He wanted to try the, you know, the old techniques of the '30s films, which like the poor man's process where you'd have a backdrop or a projection behind back in the old days, but obviously there's new technology now. So yeah. he was like really keen to try out maybe. the LED Well, rear projection or, you know, the, 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 like Fellini used to have, like, I saw this great thing about Fellini where he has this couple in a carriage and there's, if you come out to the studio, he had like a big canvas that was being rolled of, of trees and other trees in the foreground. So, you know, any way you could do it, the studios would have done it interestingly, and Fellini for sure did it interesting. And our one of the films we we referenced for the ship, especially, was a film called "And the Ship Sails On," which is a Fellini film, which has crazy, crazy, beautiful sunsets all the time. And it's 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 really a pushed kind of look, and that's something we were we were keen to try and do with poor things. So the the new technology in the LED screen was our version of a, you know a rear projection for sure or a, a painted backdrop. And then um, we had lots of fun with that, but it was difficult because LED obviously is amazing, but as soon as you put up lights and we're shooting on ectochrome, all of that light spills everywhere. And it was like, oh shit, the, the LED wall looks really faded all of a sudden. And it's like this beautiful, expensive bit of kit that I needed to sort of like, I didn't know enough about it at the time. I know better now, but you, you need to really, really be careful of how the light is coming and that it's not spilling onto the wall. And we got there, but it was a it was a challenge. Yeah. The Alexandria sequence is so amazing to me. I just love the warmth of the the light, but it's also kind of a like it's an unsettling sequence. Uh, and I love the you know you, I love the way you um, you know you mix and matched your your live action photography with miniatures. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's um, you know it gets real for Bella in Alexandria, and that was like obviously it's it's an it's a place that doesn't exist, so that was a, a great opportunity to have a miniature sort of city and world. And that was a kind of storyboarded shot where it was like, she comes down and her, she gets, she bites uh, Harry Astley's hand. And as she screams, the camera comes away and there's this beautiful miniature that it comes back from. And that's all shot as a miniature. We shot that shot for sure. Like there's a, a second unit DP called Tristan Oliver. And he shot that very shot that's in the film, but it's been obviously, embellished a bit in the world of vfx and um yeah it just seems to fit perfectly in the the universe of poor things you know and um i have to say the music in this film is like wildly bombastic so everything kind of is being driven by this great score done by jerskin fendrix that you know elevates it to another level and like really elevates the visuals i think you know I appreciate that, that that shout out. We actually we we did a podcast episode with Jerskin a couple of months ago talking about the score for Poor Things, and it was a it was a fantastic. Well, he he comes. It's his first score, and he came at it very very like differently to anybody else I could imagine because he 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 brought an emotional aspect to it, like as a childlike sort of thing. Because his music's he would admit to being quite childlike, and uh, it was perfect for him. And Jorgis saw that in his music, so it, it was a great a great great 
uh, connection there. And then we get to Paris. And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the, your work with the production designer and shooting on those amazing sets. I love the brothel. I love the, you know, the, the, the floor that's lit from underneath. It's just such a, it's such a wild, it's such a wild kind of design conceit for a film that's set in the era that it is. The Joe, James Price and Jonah Heath are like a phenomenal uh, team together on that. They'd never worked together before. So it was a really beautiful kind of team uh, effort. And uh, yeah, like, they, they found a lot of painting references. I remember Shona showing me quite a few paintings of Parisian life by, you know, in, in the Impressionistic era. And there was like a lot of lighting from above. If you look at a lot of Degas pictures, there's just like this bright ambience coming from below. Sorry, not above, from below. And it, it's just sort of a style. And maybe it's footlights or whatever. We kind of thought that would fit well in the, the scheme of it. And it, it, looks, it, it looked out of place, but it looked perfectly in place. And you know, as a composite set that uh, the, the brothel was, it, it, it helped me a lot because it gave a bit of an ambience that I could, you know, work with. And it's a dark place otherwise. So um, I, I was very pleased about the underfloor lighting. Um, and yeah, we had a lot of practicals in there. Um, you know, poor things, about 30 or 40% of the film is set in bedrooms. So, you know, all these, what, what I find amazing about the film is it teases you with all these beautiful, like crazy worlds outside, but then you find your way into a bedroom and uh, that's where you stay for quite a bit of the film. And Paris, we sp spent a lot of time in a bedroom. So it was kind of crazy filming that, a tiny little bedroom on set, knowing you had to come through the brothel. And if you looked out the window, all of Paris was outside. So it was always a bit of a tease that we're not out there more, but that's the story, you know? And I think that's the genius of it in a way that you get a glimpse of it, but you don't get to see every bit of it. And um, it makes it feel like a bigger world because of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, for sure. Well, Robbie, that's all the questions I have for you. I, I've had so much fun talking with you about this movie. I love Poor Things and your work is just stunning. And anything else you want to say before I let you go? Go see this film twice because it's a better on a second watch. <laughs> and if you like it twice, go see it three times. There you go, Robbie. <laughs> but uh, I'm no, delighted. I'm, I'm really happy everybody likes it and it's great to see it have a life, you know? I'm absolutely, really happy. absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the Dolby uh, podcast day to tell us about it. Thank you. Thanks, Len. Pleasure. Many thanks to Robbie for joining us on the podcast today. And best of luck on March 10th at the 96th Academy Awards, which will be coming to you live from the Dolby Theater in Hollywood. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Searchlight for helping us put this conversation together. Poor Things is now playing in theaters, so be sure to check it out ahead of the Oscars. We'll have a link to tickets, as always, in our show notes. And speaking of awards, as I mentioned up top, this episode is part of our continuing coverage of the Academy Awards. If you'd like to hear more conversations with Oscar nominees in this category and others, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. Many of these awards are tough to pick and predict, and we will continue to offer these in-depth interviews filled with unique insights into the work of each of these nominated artists, which may make it just a little bit easier for you to fill out your Oscar ballot, whether you are an Academy member or simply want to do a little bit better in your Oscar office pool. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Creator Talks podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Karen Marroquin. Thank you for joining us.